We began a new series last weekend called The Art of Neighboring. And uh, if you were with us last weekend, then you know what's coming up next. We are going to take a test. If you weren't here last weekend, sorry. Uh, but uh, we're going to take a test. And actually, the test on the back of your bulletin, if you've got your bulletin, flip it over. The test looks like this. You've got nine squares. The center square is to represent your home. And there are three questions to this test, which you will answer in each of those, those other eight boxes. Um, and the reason we're taking the test is because as we learn the art of neighboring, as we uh, follow after Jesus and he says, love your neighbor as yourself, we, we can't even begin to do that until we know who our neighbors are. Um, and literally, who, who are our neighbors? So here, here's a three-part question. The first part of this, uh, this, t- this test is um, the question, who is my neighbor? What are the names of the, uh, the, the people who live in the eight closest houses uh, to you or the eight closest apartments? So if you've got your bulletin, get your pencil or your pen. You're going to write those in those, those uh, boxes around your home. Uh, the names of the, the, of the people who live closest to you, the eight houses, eight apartments, if you live in the country, eight uh, names of the eight people you are closest with at work, uh, write those names uh, in. And by the way, um, last week somebody in China, actually a couple from our church was in China, they've been there for three months, and they heard the podcast, they took the test, and, uh, and they got eight names. So I'll just tell you, people in China are doing this, folks. You can too. <laughs> All right, you can too. Uh, if we're gonna love our neighbors, we need to know their names. So write those names. You may only know two names. You might know six names, eight names. But write whatever you know. Put them down in that box first. And then, by the way, in the lobby, see those doors out there. If you weren't here last week, um, we'd love it if if you only know one name or two names, or maybe you know all eight. Just write the first name of your neighbors or those folks who live closest to you on those doors out there. No last names, just first names. And then, as you learn something new about them, you just circle the name. And together we get to watch how we're, how we're doing in this art of neighboring. But it all begins with the, with the name. Learn those names. The second part of, the, of this test is what's something unique about the person that you know? You know their name now. What's something unique about them? You write that underneath their name. It, it, it can't be they've got brown hair or blonde hair or no hair. All right? It needs to be something that you would know from being in conversation with them. So that's the second part of the question. And of the test. The th- third part of this test is what's their story? What's their story? What motivates them in life? So what, again, if you only have two names, what's something unique? What's their story? Uh, get those. It, it, learn some new names. By the way, who, who was here last week and knows more names this week than last? Okay, quite a few. Okay, great. Great. Super. Thanks for, for diving in on that. And let me just say to you, if you're up for the challenge of, of learning the art of neighboring, if you're up for the challenge of learning your eight closest neighbors, we'd love to know where in town that, that, that you live. Um, we'd love to get your, just your street name and the part of town you live in. So what, so what we're going to do next week, we're going to throw this map up here, and as we get your street name, like Silverton Road, Northeast, or Dokes Ferry, Northwest, we're just going to start plotting on the map uh, people who are up for this challenge. Uh, folks, folks who are up for this challenge of, of learning who their neighbors are and getting to hear their story. Um, and, uh, and we'll just, over the next couple weeks, that, that'll just build. So we would love to have the street you live on. We don't need your house number, just the street you live on. And if you're up for this challenge, you can, we'd love to get it from you. And here's how you can get it to us. You can do it right now by grabbing your phone and texting to this phone number, 22333. That's the phone number you're going to text to, 
2233. You have to put in the keyword address, okay? Put the keyword address and then leave a space and then put your street name. Dokes Ferry West, Lock Haven, Kaiser, Cordon Road, you know, East, or wherever you, just your, your street name and, and what part of town you live in. You can start sending those in now. And then uh, that will, that'll get posted uh, to, the, to the map next week. And then if you, if you don't text, um, just write on a card. And there's some baskets out by the doors in the lobby. You just drop it in one of those baskets. Uh, just to say, yeah, I'm up for this challenge. I, I, I want to get to know the names of my eight closest neighbors um, and, and hear their story and learn this art of neighboring. So we, again, you can, you can text, actually you can text that in all day. Uh, you can text that, that, that street name in. We'll leave that open uh, throughout the day. All right, got your Bibles, grab those. Um, and uh, we're gonna look at a couple passages, um, but we're gonna actually hit quite a few passages. Um, last week, last Saturday, I was sitting alone in a house, I was working on some stuff, and I heard this loud, confident knock on our door. When I opened the door, there was a young lady who was very smartly dressed, and she was, she was selling something. And I could tell by the, the logo on her jacket that she was selling uh, some lawn care stuff. And uh, she went into her spiel with me without missing a beat, and it went something like this. Uh, I've been talking to your neighbors, and uh, your neighbors are, are very interested in my product, and I can tell as I was walking up by your lawn that you've got some issues with your lawn that I would love to talk to you about. You've got some problems out there. Why don't you come on out with me, and I want to show them to you. And I, I'll just tell you, right, right, we were 10 seconds into this, call it a conversation, one, one person talking, the walls went up, went up real quick, because I, I knew that she didn't really care about my, my lawn, she was moving product. Um, she was not inviting me into a lawn care movement. That might have hooked me. Uh, or she didn't walk up and say, uh, you know, I, I can tell you care about your lawn and I want to help you. And so come on out here. I want to I help you in, in caring for your lawn. That, that might have gotten me. But when you start out with, you got problems and everyone in the neighborhood is using my product and you need it, I, I'm putting walls up because I can sense, just like you can sense, when the motives aren't pure, you can catch a whiff of those and you just want to keep, keep a distance from that. I mean, if someone is selling something to you and you can tell they don't care about you, they're just trying to move product, you can, you can catch a whiff of that very, very quickly. Or if someone is, is telling you a story and you know that this is not just a story being told, that this is going somewhere, there's an ask coming. There's gonna, someone's going to want something from you. You can pick that scent up very quickly. Or even when someone's giving a gift to you and you can sense that there's strings attached, you, you catch a whiff of that very quickly. Our actions come from our motives. And our motives... Our motives matter, especially when it comes to learning the art of neighboring. When you are reaching out in your neighbors, if you, in your neighborhoods, if your motives are not pure, your neighbors, just like you, your neighbors can pick up a whiff of impure motives very quickly. And we want to make sure that as we're entering into this, uh, this, this challenge of learning the art of neighboring, that, that our motives are aligned with Christ's motives. So we need to understand what motivated Christ when he did ministry on earth. What, what got him going? What stopped him in his tracks? And, and, and real quickly, I mean, the first one is, is obvious that he was motivated to please the Father. 
Christ was motivated to glorify the Father. He wanted to put a smile on his Father's face. That motivated him in ministry. But the second thing that motivated him, uh, it, it really it appeared as he interacted with people. This, this thing, this motive would stop him in his tracks. When Jesus was exhausted, this would, would, would energize him and keep him moving forward. When he was, when he was ready to call it a day, this motive would then keep him going into the night. And, and, and so what is it? What motivated Christ? Well, I'll put it up on the screen here. Here's what motivated Christ. Splugnitsamai. Isn't that just a great word? Just say it with me. Splugnitsamai. When you're having coffee with a friend this week, say, hey, can I have a little more Splugnitsamai in my coffee? Or just toss that word out. Your friends are going to think you're just brilliant. What a great word. Splugnitsamai. Well, for the sake of being able to remember it, let's just shorten it. Let's just call it splag. Splag. Splag motivated Christ. When, when Christ had these splag moments, it would stop him in his tracks. He, he was interruptible because of splag. Let me define it for you. It, it literally means to have your bowels yearn. I've always wanted to say bowels in church. Kids, when someone says, hey, what the pastor preaching on? Bowels, yearning bowels. But it literally means to have your bowels yearn, to be moved with pity and sympathy. Ever had one of those moments where you see someone in desperate circumstances and you get a pit in your stomach? That's splag. And to put it in common language, splag, splagnisima, is to experience gut-wrenching, stomach-twisting compassion. This motivated Christ. In, you know, in, in our society, we believe now that the, the center, we, our language uh, reveals this belief that we believe that emotion and feeling is seated in the heart, which is why we would say, if I was saying uh, I love you to my wife, I would, to Trina, I would say I love you with all my heart because that's where we feel the emotions. It's, it's in our heart. But in Jesus' day, love, emotion was intestinal. They would, they would say something like, I love you with all my intestines. I would say to Trina, I love you with all, all my intestines. You move me. <laughs> Track with me? All right, I just thought I'd throw it out there. See if you'd, uh, if you'd catch that one. She doesn't like it when I say I love you with all my intestines. But that's, in Jesus' day, that's where feeling and emotion was. And so when you saw someone in desperate circumstances, you got twisted up inside. This motivated Christ. And I, I just want to just show you, you'll see this all through the Gospels. You'll see it through the stories that he tells. That this motive of compassion, stomach-twisting, stomach-churning compassion would stop Jesus in his tracks. Let me just highlight a few of them. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had splag on them. He had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he saw the crowds, they were directionless, they were visionless, and he got twisted up inside. And he wanted to help. And he had compassion. He, had, he experienced splag. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 41. It's a story of an encounter with a leper. Lepers were these folks with a disease that, that society would believe that you had leprosy because you had sinned or your parents had sinned. Something wrong happened. You got struck with this disease. You were a social outcast. You were an untouchable. 
Today, this would be anyone that we look down upon and say, but you, the reason you have this problem is because you got yourself in this situation. Jesus encounters a leper in Mark chapter one. It says, a man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with splag, compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. He touched the untouchable. Matthew chapter 15, another splag moment for Jesus. Then Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel compassion for these people. They have been here with me for three days and they have nothing left to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they will faint along the way. I mean, Jesus is so compassionate that he wants to touch a leper, but also when he sees people hungry, he, he's twisted up inside. And probably one of the most significant moments that I can find in the Gospels of Jesus being moved by compassion, having one of those splag moments where he's churning up inside with compassion, sympathy, and pity, is found in Matthew chapter 14. And before I even read the verse, let me just give you some context here, because you, you need to know this context. Jesus has just discovered that one of his family members has been executed, John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been beheaded on a whim. Some girl danced, a husband and wife were at odds with each other, and his cousin gets his head cut off. And Jesus gets the news that John the Baptist has lost his head. And in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, he says, he said that Jesus got into a boat and he wanted to withdraw to a lonely place. He just needed space. He was grieving. And he wanted to get away from the crowds. Got in his boat and started making his way across the lake. When, he go, when he, he's headed to the other side of the lake, what's going to happen is the crowds that were there that he needed some space from, they hear that he's going to this place on the other side of the lake and they walk around. So when Jesus, who is grieving, who wants some space, gets off the boat, Who's there but thousands of people again? Now, I don't know about you, but what I would have been doing at that point in time is I would have said, okay, which one of you disciples told them where we were going? Because I need space. I'm weary, I'm grieving, or I might be frustrated, I might be angry and try to drive the crowds. I might get back on the boat and find another spot. But not Jesus. After grieving, after being weary, Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had splag. He had compassion on them. His stomach got all twisted up. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Splag motivated Christ. Jesus was a person that crowds flocked to because they experienced love from him like they experienced love from nobody else. There was nobody like Jesus, and, and, and he just oozed compassion. He oozed sympathy. He oozed pity. He was moved with splag. That's who Jesus is. So that's who we are, right? Right? Well, actually, think about asking a hundred people who have nothing to do with church. Ask them this question. Think of one word or one phrase to, to uh, describe Christians. What would they say? What would the words that we, what, the words that you think would come to, the, come to their mind? That question, by the way, has been asked, and it wasn't asked to 100 people, it was asked to over 1,000 people. And their responses may offend you. I'll give you the top five responses, family feud style. 
Number five, the phrase that, uh, that comes to mind is out of touch. This is the, the fifth most common response by unchurched people as they describe Christ followers. Out of touch. Number four, political. Number three, and this one hurts, unloving. Of course, they're talking about other churches, not talking about us, but you know, other churches out there. Number two on the list, judgmental. The number one most common response, what's one word or phrase that comes to mind when you think about Christians in North America? The number one response was angry. How did we get here? No wonder there's a disconnect. How do we get from Jesus being moved with splag, stopped in his tracks, interruptible, crowds chasing after him, and he even interrupting his grieving? How do we go from this, this Christ who we want to become like, we want to we be transformed and conformed to his image, how do we get to this place where we're being, we're being described as angry, unloving, judgmental, political, and the list goes on? What happened? Steve Segorin, in his book called Irresistible Evangelism, says that the church in North America has committed the seven deadly sins of evangelism. I'll just list them out for you. Number one, scheming. We committed the sin of scheming. Segorin, in his book, puts it this way. Uh, he says, right this minute, hundreds of well-meaning and, and some not-so-well-meaning church and parachurch leaders are promoting subtly dishonest schemes specifically designed to entice and fool folks into hearing the gospel. This last Easter, a church in the South had their Easter service, told their members, go and bring your friends to church, tell them that they can put their name in a drawing, we'll draw, and if their name is chosen, they will win a free trip to Disney World. That's a great reason to come to church on Easter, but they'll hear the gospel. What's the motive there in scheming? It's manipulation, so that you'll hear the gospel. Number two on the seven deadly sins of evangelism, number two is scalp hunting. A little notch in the belt. What's the motive there? Pride. Number three on his list is screaming. Screamers. Bullhorn evangelism. In fact, you actually don't have to scream to commit this sin. Sigourin uh, says, when we act like we are a cut above others, we commit the sin of screaming without ever raising our voices. What's the, what's the motive there? Anger, typically. The fourth deadly sin that Sigourin lists is selling Jesus like he's a juicer. Oh, your life is gonna be good when you got Jesus. Your life is, it's gonna go so much better when you have Jesus in your life. Jesus does promise abundant life, but he also says there'll be suffering. There's gonna be potholes and skin knees and difficulty. Yet we commit the sin of selling Jesus like he's a juicer. One of the comments uh, from Sigourney's book is the temptation to treat not yet Christians as potential customers who need to be sold an eternal life insurance policy is strong in our market-driven culture. Selling Jesus. Fifth deadly sin on his list is stalking. Stalkers. You... You ever had a little stalker? What's the motive there? 
It's just, it's just creepy, right? <laughs> it's just the motive. It's just creepy. But we can all, I mean, we've, we've, we've all experienced that and maybe even done it. A, a six on his list is uh, sermonizing. So you got your elevator speech, your elevator, elevator pitch, you got your spiel, and, and, and you just, you're, just, you're just giving it where, wherever you're going. Um, uh, Sigorn in his, in his book uh, puts sermonizing this way. Sermonizing can often be characterized as offering answers to questions no one's asking. <laughs> Jesus read situations and then just out of splag didn't offer answers. He, he came and just expressed care and love. Yes, he taught. He was motivated by compassion. Number seven, the seventh deadly sin in Sigourney's uh, book, uh, Irresistible Evangelism, is, is, uh, it's called spectating. Uh, spectating, fear of rejection and fear of failure are the excuses the vast majority of Christians use for never evangelizing. What's the motive here? It's fear. What motivated Christ? Splag. What motivates us as our culture defines us is anger, pride, manipulation, fear, Go on. Mahatma Gandhi, in a, in a conversation with a Christian, some of you know this quote, Gandhi having a conversation about Christ says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That's depressing. What happened? We, we started committing these seven deadly sins of evangelism and we, we lost the heart of what motivated Jesus in ministry. He get all twisted up inside. He, he, he'd be moved, and he couldn't help but stop and love on people. See, this is why Jesus would tell story after story to try and help people correct their distorted picture of who God is. He would tell parable after parable. He would give metaphor after metaphor to help people take down that distorted picture of who Father God is. Take that thing down and get rid of it. Let's throw a blank canvas up there. Let me paint it with some colors for the story so you can understand who God is and how you're supposed to live. So you don't end up angry and unloving and judgmental and so on and so forth. Let me tell you some stories. And the Gospels are full of those stories. And two centerpiece stories are found in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. Rabbi, what, what, what's the most important commandment in all the law? 613 laws, which one do you think is most important? Well, I'll sift those things down into two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. A lawyer looking for a loophole says, well, who's my neighbor? Well, that's a pretty relevant question in the art of neighboring, don't you think? Who's my neighbor? Well, let me tell you a story. There's this guy heading down the road. Out from behind some bushes jumps these bandits, some robbers. They beat this guy to a pulp. They, they rob him. They leave him from dead on the side of the road. A priest headed to the temple walks by, sees the guy lying on the side of the road dead or dying. And he, he crosses to the other side and keeps on going. A Levite, a worker in the temple, sees the guy on the side of the road dying, crosses to the other side of the road and keeps on going. And then... Luke records in Luke chapter 10, a despised Samaritan came along. When he saw the man, he felt what? Splag. When the despised Samaritan 
saw the man left for dead on the side of the road. He felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to, to an inn. He put him in a hotel. He paid his hotel bill. He took him to a hospital. He covered his health care bill. He left extra money because he was on a business trip and told the guys that when he was coming back, that if there was more cost, he'd pick up the tab. That's what it means to love your neighbor. Now, we don't feel the full force of that because Samaritans and Jews, we don't understand the tension there. Let me put it to you this way. A U.S. soldier is going down the road and some people jump out from behind the bushes and beat him to a pulp, leave him there for dead. A U.S. general is walking down the road, sees a U.S. soldier there and crosses to the other side of the street and keeps on going. A special forces individual is also walking down the road, sees that U.S. soldier in the pitch, uh, in the ditch, and, and crosses over to the other side of the road and keeps on going. But then a member of Al-Qaeda comes down the road and sees a U.S. soldier laying there, and he goes up, bandages his wounds, takes him to an inn, pays his health care bill, pays his hotel bill. Can you feel the tension? That's your neighbor. That's what it means to love your neighbor. Do you know why the priest and the Levite didn't stop because if the man was dead and they touched him they'd be unclean and they wouldn't be able to do their job at the temple religion kept them from caring is that not twisted Jesus tells a story and says no no here's the picture here's the picture of God's heart and then another picture he gives us in Luke chapter 15. Three stories, lost, uh, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Uh, the shepherd loses uh, one sheep out of, out of 100, he goes, leaves the 99 behind, goes and gets the one. A woman loses a coin, she turns her house upside down looking for that lost coin. And then the story of a son who says to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance so I can go and spend it on myself. He gets the inheritance from his father, and he goes off in some distant land, and he spends all his money. He goes bankrupt. He finds himself in a desperate situation, and he puts this plan together. He's going to go back because he realizes life is better back home. And all the parents in the room are going, yeah, I told you. <laughs> Luke 15, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and what? Splag. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Tim Keller, in his book, Prodigal God, gives some great insight here. In this culture, if a son would have done that to his father, he would not have only dishonored the father, he would have dishonored the community. We think very individualistic. In Hebrew culture, it, it, but you're not just dishonoring your father, you're dishonoring the whole community. When that son would have come back, what the community would have done in a real life situation is they all would have picked up stones and they would have started throwing them at the son to drive him away because he was not worthy to come home. But in this story, the father picks up his robe and runs to his son, not just to embrace him and put a robe and a ring on his finger, no, but to protect him from any condemnation and any, any harm that might come from stones being chucked at him. Motivated by splag. And so Jesus would tell story and story and parable after parable and teach about the kingdom of God to say, this is who your, 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 your dad is. This is who you are to become. 
motivated by splag, motivated by love and compassion. Yet somehow we've committed these deadly sins and people don't think about us that way. Yet before us, I would say, is a fantastic opportunity. A great opportunity. Look at this quote from Mother Teresa. The greatest disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy. It's being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicines, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It is not only poverty of loneliness, but also of spirituality. There is a hunger for love as there is a hunger for God. Here's the opportunities before us. There is a hunger for God. And there is a hunger for love. People are hungry for spirituality. And they are attracted to pure compassion. They catch a whiff of something else, it's at arm's length. But if they experience true, unadulterated splag, you've got their attention. This is unlike anything they expected or experienced. And so, as we, as God's people, as we learn the art of neighboring, as we evangelize and it flows from splag, there's nothing to be concerned about. So what we need, what we need is Christ's compassion. We need splag. How do you get it? I'm just going to give you three, three ways that you can, you, you can get some splag. First one's this. Ask for it. Ask for splag. I, I've been praying this for three months for myself because I need it. I need splag. So I just, I, I've been praying for three months. Lord, give me a compassion like you had compassion. Fill me with with the splag that you displayed. Just start asking for it. You know, oftentimes we have breath prayers, little short little prayers that you can pray. You know, you're driving through town. Every time you see a red light, you, sh- you pray this, this short prayer. Or in the top of an hour, you pray a short prayer. You can pray this very spiritual prayer. It goes something like this. Father, splag me. <laughs> you, you'll remember that. Splag me. Or if you're more comfortable... You know, praying a, a verse from Scripture, from Colossians, you can, pr- you can pray, Father, clothe me with compassion. Start asking for it. Just start begging. Like that leper begged for healing, you and I need a healing as well. Beg for compassion and beg for splag. That'd be a great place to start. Second place you can, you can go to is just start meditating on the Gospels. Just one, one of the things I'm doing this year in my own private time with, with, with Christ is I'm just reading nothing but the Gospels. Started in Matthew, working my way through, uh, through Mark and Luke, and then I, in John, and then when I get done with John, I'm going back to Matthew. 
I'm just going to loop back to Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just staying in the Gospels, staying in the Gospels. Why do that? How does it help with splag? You just see how you're immersed in how Jesus touched people and cared for people. You're just immersed in the ethic of the kingdom of God, of what it's like to live in the culture of the kingdom. Just immerse yourself in that. Meditate in the Gospels. And then the third thing you can do, ask for splag, meditate in the Gospels, and then just hang out with some unchurched people. Hang out with people who don't know Christ. You do know, I mean, this might make you feel a little uncomfortable, but you do know that Jesus was known as the party rabbi? I mean, seriously. He was called the friend of sinners. The spiritually curious would want to spend time with him. And they were, they were labeled as tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus was labeled as a drunkard and a glutton, which meant he hung out at the buffet line and he, and he did drink. And the people looked at him, and the religious people looked at him and said, something wrong with that. But when you look at why, and you understand motive, it makes complete sense. Jesus would say things like, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. So he spent his time with people that he was motivated to care for and love. And he splagged all over the place. And Israel was changed. And a movement was born. And that's what he's calling us to. The point is, is that we need to hang out with people who are unchurched. We run in circles, folks. We run in circles in which we surround ourselves with Christians. And it's so easy to go through our day Get home, hit the, hit the remote control, go in the garage door, shut the garage door, and never interact with our world who's hurting. People who desperately need a touch of splag. So that's gonna look, it's gonna, wherever your neighborhood is, that, that's a great place to start in loving and caring for people who so desperately need to experience Christ's love.